0: Hi everyone. I'm Sam Barnes. I'm Grace Kyer, and I'm Ariel Landau.
1: And, and welcome to Big Nuke, Nuke Energy. Energy.
0: The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast and on the Big Nuke Energy Twitter belong solely to the co-hosts and not necessarily to their employers, universities, or other organizational affiliations. Any content provided by the co-hosts are of their own opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, organization, company, or individual. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 38 of Big Nuke Energy. We thank you all so much for taking some time out of your day today to hear what we have to say. We are really excited to have an amazing guest with us this week. Grace, would you like to introduce our guest?
1: Sure. Our guest today is Rose Tanakhna, who is an Associate Research Analyst at the Center for Naval Analysis, where her research focus is on China's economic statecraft, overseas foreign investment, export control laws, and nuclear weapons program. Rose holds a master's from the Middlebury Institute of International Studies in Nonproliferation and Terrorism Studies, and she has worked at the Center for Non-Proliferation Studies, tracking North Korean illicit procurement networks, as well as at the Czech Technical University's Department of Nuclear Reactors, where she studied safeguards. Also, Rose was a Boren Fellow and studied Mandarin at Tsinghua University in China. So welcome, Rose. We're really excited to have you on the podcast.
2: Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. I listened to your podcast, and I've been listening to it for a while, and so it's very nice to be on it for once.
1: It's really nice to have you on, and we're excited to to talk to you.
2: I want to add the caveat that the views I express here are mine and my own and don't reflect those of my workplace or any sponsors for the Center for Naval Analysis.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did you enjoy being in Monterey for for your master's degree?
2: Yes, I did. It was honestly the most beautiful place I've ever lived. And I'm still kind of thinking strategically about future life decisions that somehow it make me retire, end up in that vicinity, return to Monterey at some point in my life. And I definitely miss it.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: I think that's a common theme with all sorts of nuclear studies issues is that they always are like in these beautiful places. Not always, but like Vienna and Monterey. So it's, it's nice that they, they coincide.
2: Yeah, and Prague too, I was lucky. I got to do kind of a visiting fellowship opportunity at Czech Technical University and Prague is another beautiful city,
0: so. Well, we're gonna go ahead and do a short discussion question before we get into the meat and talk about Chinese nuclear programs. Uh, The short discussion question this week lives up to its name. It is short, salty or sweet. And by that, I mean, literally anything. I just think it tells you so much about a person if in their free time they crave something salty or they crave something sweet. So Rose, which one do you think you would pick?
2: So for me, i definitely have to go with the sweet. I have like this unsatiable sweet tooth and I bake continuously. So I'm always like, I just won't buy any sweets. It'll be fine. But I have the ability to make anything that I'd want. So it really, it doesn't help when I don't buy sweets because I just make it.
1: I definitely feel the same way i have a huge sweet tooth and then i've gotten really into baking especially in the pandemic and it's just kind of a never-ending cycle of me wanting sweet things and then getting better at baking and more capable of making those things what about
3: you ariel i'm definitely a am uh, gonna say salty and sweet i think like french fries with like a chocolate milkshake is there's nothing better in the whole world. And I also like really love margaritas because that like salt and sweetness of that is just my favorite.
0: What about you? Maybe, you know, maybe I should have asked, do you put sugar or salt on your margarita? Because I didn't know people actually put sugar on them until like, I don't know, I was having a discussion with my roommate and she was like, oh, well, you know, like sugar goes on margaritas too. I was like, no, just, just salt. Think, does it, does it I really? <laughs> I don't think that's a thing. Yeah. But for salty or sweet, I'm going to have to say sweet. I also have a really big sweet tooth. When I don't purchase candy at the grocery store or something sweet, I do end up craving salty snacks, like when I don't have that sugar in my system constantly. But as soon as I get like a taste of sugar, my body just needs more of it. (laughs) Well, thanks for indulging me. I was just curious. We'll go ahead and move into our deep dive for the week which we're gonna be talking with you Rose about Chinese nuclear programs. Before we get into China though, we just wanna know how did you get into the field of non-proliferation in the first place?
2: Yeah. So I came from a, I don't know, I guess most people kind of come into this career. I don't know anybody who's like set out and said this was the career I was going to get into. I was actually initially a middle school English teacher for three years. And I did, I did teach for America right after graduating from undergrad. So it wasn't a linear path to getting into this field, but I kind of had an interest in, international affairs and international politics particularly with a focus though on more kind of U.S. national security when I was in undergraduate and then I was a teacher for a few years and I loved doing that and it was a great experience but I was like this isn't exactly the career I see myself lasting in and so I was like I'm going to go back and get my master's degree and so I started kind of researching different programs for a master's degree and I came across the Middlebury one on non-proliferation and thought to myself that is where my interest really lies. And now kind of the familial tie to this, all kind of in the background of my head, I've always grown up around nuclear energy because my father is a nuclear engineer and we have family photos taken at multiple nuclear power plants in this country and abroad. It's like his favorite pastime to pose the children in front of the nuclear power plant. And (laughs) so I kind of grew up with a strong understanding of that aspect of kind of how does nuclear energy work? How do nuclear reactors work? But I didn't ever really, he was always like, no, it's so separate from the weapons. There's peaceful uses. This is the peaceful uses. I don't talk about weapons. And he just never, he was very much like dedicated to that delineation of nuclear being there's weapons and then there's the nuclear energy. And so I was kind of like, well, I want to study the weapons. Like I want to study why do people have, all of these treaties in place to prevent this spread of this weapon like what exactly is behind all of this and so i came from it from trying to understand that and i did the master's degree and it kind of was able to combine a lot of my interest in nuclear and then in chinese by studying chinese export controls and nuclear policy
3: wow that's a wild journey and (laughs) i love the posing the kids in front of the power plants that's lovely So how did you specifically get interested in Chinese nuclear issues and then decide to study China?
2: That was kind of also, I I guess my father can be attributed for a lot of my career choices. So dad, if you're listening, thank you. He told me when I started in undergrad, I had to pick a language for my university because they require three semesters of a foreign language. And I was going through and thinking, and I was like, what kind of language am I most interested in studying? And he was like, you know, you should look into Chinese because you can't go wrong with studying Chinese. Everyone will need to know Chinese in the future, especially if you want to go into international relations. And I was like, that's a solid advice. And so I decided to take it, fell in love with it. I liked that it wasn't an alphabet. I liked that it was artistic. I liked the, the way characters kind of describe like you can see so much history in each of the characters and that really appealed to me. And so I just dived fully into studying Chinese and it became my minor in undergrad. And then I used it throughout my master's degree and continued studying it in China through a Boren Fellowship.
1: that sounds like a really, really great synthesis of all these different areas that are so interesting on their own. And then to combine them sounds super interesting. And so moving more into the Chinese nuclear programs, there's been a lot of discussion lately with the new presidential administration of the threat China poses, in particular in the nuclear field. Can you just give us a broad overview of what the Chinese nuclear program looks like in terms of its weapons and how that compares with the United States?
2: Yeah, of course. And so I think it's really interesting because both countries are kind of undergoing nuclear modernization, but they're doing it in a very different manner. So I kind of see bottom line, the U.S. is maintaining capabilities. The U.S. is trying to reconstitute previous systems, things like the the SLICM, the submarine-launched cruise missile, and it's also engaging in lifetime extension or modification of current capabilities. It's not really introducing New 21st technology into any kind of plans. There's no publicly available information that says the US, for example, is going to have a nuclear tipped hypersonic weapon anytime soon. On the other hand, China is expanding its capabilities. So it's modernizing both numerically and qualitatively. They're diversifying their systems, they're coming up with hypersonic vehicles, and they have not stated whether or not they may end up developing nuclear tipped hypersonic glide vehicles. And China's also starting to expand across the triad. They were predominantly a land-based deterrent. Now that's expanding to air and sea. They are working on increasing their second strike capabilities, increasing the resilience of their nuclear force. And so it's kind of a very different modernization compared to the US. And we don't really know Much about it because China is not incredibly transparent. And so that leaves us to make a lot of guesses, a lot of estimations. I mean, people can estimate their nuclear arsenal is from low 200s, which I've seen in the DoD China Power Report, all the way up to potentially the thousands I've seen people speculate. And that wide range of estimations comes from the fact their program is entrenched in opacity. They are just ardent believers that they can only maintain a strong nuclear deterrent through being as non-transparent as possible, because it's the only way they can have that credible second strike.
1: That's really interesting, especially because one of the guests we had a couple of interviews ago was talking about the North Korean program, which of course is a very different approach in terms of, you know, showing everything off, not everything, but showing, the world, what you have and what you have in terms of nuclear capabilities and using that as a deterrent factor instead of using this opacity that you described. So it's a very interesting difference in my mind.
2: It is, it is. And it's honestly, it's fascinating because I think we are entering an era though, where we're requiring a lot more information through open source analysis. So we're able to use satellite imagery. We're able to use other means to better estimate how many nuclear weapons do they have. We can track through videos the People's Liberation Army releases. We can kind of start tracking what brigades or where, what capabilities do they have. And there's people who spend lots of hours doing that and analyzing, you know, what weapons are pictured right here in the background of these soldiers running across this field oh it's a you know it's a df-26 let's get more information now from this particular image and so we're able to get information that way but we're not getting hardly anything coming from china directly and there's reasons like they of course it's entrenched in that historically they didn't feel a need to be transparent they felt it was in their benefit to be Opaque. And honestly, previously, they weren't a concern because they had such a small arsenal. They didn't have weapons that could reach the U.S. And the U.S. was initially focused on Russia. There was the Cold War and we were building up. There was that competition. And there was much less scrutiny given to what is China doing and what are they developing over the past 10 years
0: I think it's very remarkable then that you're studying China and able to make inferences based on the available information. So I always respect people who are studying such opaque issues. One issue in particular that's been very big in regards to China is export controls. So I was curious if you could first briefly tell us what are export controls and then what reforms is China undertaking to export control?
2: Yeah, this is a huge topic right now and expert controls are very important and they're one strange aspect of non-proliferation. They were created largely because of trying to prevent the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction across the board, chemical, biological, and nuclear. Essentially, export controls are just laws that prohibit the unlicensed export of commodities or information even. You can have what's called a deemed export between people-to-people exchanges. That definition has really broadened. The aperture has widened to include a lot of different technologies. Essentially, anything that is kind of tied to national security concerns. So whereas historically this was just wmds and their related technologies, nowadays it's encompassing a whole wide range of dual use technology, things from microchips, sensors, 3d printers, lasers, etc. And China is currently building an integrated export control regime that they did not previously have. So Historically, China's kind of relied on piecemeal regulation and legislation to kind of have loose export controls on WMD-related technologies. Now they've created this framework that is just foundational. It's like the first comprehensive export control law. It was passed in 2020, so just last year. And it is essentially creating a export control system that more closely mirrors the U.S., that includes having an unreliable entity list, which is similar to the U.S. entity list. So an entity list is a list in which companies who've kind of been deemed to either have posed a threat to China's national security or who potentially could be negatively impacting China's national security. It's kind of a broad definition and what could be put on that list. But essentially, China can take any company that could be harming China's national security and place it on the unreliable entities list. And in a way, a lot of these export controls are going to be used. And I think as we're seeing some of this starting to happen to be kind of a tit for tap for U.S. sanctions and our response. So if, for example, we put a company on our export control list, China can retaliate and say, if you choose to enforce U.S. sanctions, you're harming our national security. Therefore, we're going to sanction your company and you lose market access to our country. And so companies are going to be increasingly forced to choose between complying with U.S. sanctions or gaining access to Chinese markets.
1: And is it always kind of that tit for tat retaliation from both sides or Is it ever, you know, something happens that the US arrests a Chinese citizen or does something else or another Western country or another country that's viewed as perhaps like an adversary of China and then export controls are affected or is it always just like export controls and sanctions within that field? Because I think we've seen in the past issues with, you know, freedom of speech in China and what journalists are doing that doesn't necessarily seem directly tied to Chinese behavior in, for example, the journalism field in the United States or something?
2: Yeah. So I've seen from a U.S. perspective, we have leveraged sanctions for a variety of reasons. Like you have, for example, after the Russian aggression in Crimea, a whole host of Russian banks and companies and organizations were thrown onto the U.S. entity list and it became sanctioned under various export control laws. And now China has that framework, the regulatory framework in place to kind of be able to do that. But it's so new, we don't really know how they're going to use it. It's something that we'll be keeping an eye on because it's something I'll be curious to see how they plan on enforcing it. Like what is going to be the enforcement mechanisms? How is it going to look? When are they going to establish sanctions against another country? At this point, it's just too new to really know.
3: Wow. It'll be really interesting to see how that plays out in the coming years, and especially under the Biden administration. So what other issues do you think are important when analyzing Chinese nuclear programs?
2: I think an often forgotten aspect of any nuclear weapons program is a absolute mandatory requirement of having one, which is fissile material. And sometimes when I'm seeing these wide range of estimates, for example, the higher thousands for saying that China can within... The next 10 years, triple the size of their arsenal. My question is always kind of, well, how? Given current estimates of China's fissile material, it isn't simply possible because based on a lot of the open source data, the most China can do over the next 10 years is double. And that'll be basically consuming all of their fissile material. Now, granted, this can change. There can be many things that cause that change. For example, if they do follow through with getting a reprocessing facility, then that current level of fissile material is going to go up. But given what we know now, it's unlikely to say that there are nuclear arsenal is going to triple in size. And so I think many analysts need to kind of remember that there's a lot of open source information available and particularly think about, okay, well, what if you're looking at numerical fissile material, like how is that going to impact these numbers that we're kind of thinking and estimating in the future?
1: And we've seen a lot of discussion recently at the end of the Trump administration, especially now with confirmation hearings and the new administration about China's role as this essentially rising, becoming a very dominant global power, and this power that's very much countering in a lot of ways the U.S., What role do you think that the Chinese nuclear program plays in helping it to become a global power, especially given what you just said about the limitations, the very real scientific and numerical limitations on that program?
2: I think that's a really interesting question because to kind of answer that question, I think it's important to kind of understand how the U.S. views the importance of nuclear weapons on an international stage compared to China, because the U.S. comes at this from a very Cold War perspective. We had that experience. We lived through as a country, this Cold War, this feeling that we were going to use nuclear weapons. And that really shaped how we viewed the importance of nuclear weapons, how we viewed the international stage, and kind of how we viewed our position within that international stage. China never had that experience. They did not have that same Cold War experience. And honestly, it's going to be very different between China and the U.S. given the larger discrepancies in nuclear arsenals. So I don't think we're going to have a very similar kind of U.S. to China race to parity because, I mean, China is just so behind and there are such hard numerical constraints. And when China was kind of first pursuing its nuclear weapon, right after its first nuclear test They declared their no first use policy. Mao referred to nuclear weapons as a paper tiger, and they kind of have reiterated this mindset that nuclear weapons exist, but they exist kind of so that they can kind of be at the table with other global leaders. They never kind of thought of them as framing all of their role with the international community. China has kind of built another set of tools to do that for example, in juxtaposition to seeing the international stage as something that nuclear weapons plays a huge role in, they see economic statecraft. They see pulling different levers with the economy as a way to shape their position on the international stage. And I think that it's just such a different viewpoint that it's almost like hard to see how they would be able to utilize their nuclear weapons program to like frame the international community in any kind of way.
0: Yeah, I think that's a very fascinating answer. And going off of your point about, you know, China's other realms of influence in the international community, there's been a lot of talk about their Belt and Road Initiative, which they're providing these non-concessional loans to developing nations in order to counter US soft power in those regions. And we can't just look at the nuclear program, you know, without considering other factors such as the Belt and Road Initiative.
2: Yes, I think that honestly, China invests a lot all across kind of the dime, like they're looking at, you know, diplomacy, they're looking at investment military like economics, like they're looking all across these different sectors across the international playing field to see how can they leverage their influence. And In my opinion, they're not going to achieve kind of the same level, though, of cooperation that the U.S. has been able to achieve simply due to the fact of their lack of transparency. We've seen with arms control agreements, the frustration of trying to engage them. We've seen the unwillingness to come to a table to have those negotiations and and extend that to trilateral, bilateral. China just says we only will do P5. But then at the same time, they're never going to give up the information necessary to make a arms treaty necessarily something that other parties would want to participate in, because they're not going to be as transparent. They don't just see the benefit of it. And without kind of having that mindset of, okay, well, we're going to come to the table to be more transparent and we understand this benefit of transparency. I think it's going to be really hard for them to play a major role in leading nuclear nonproliferation.
1: That's really interesting. And I think kind of goes against this conventional view now that China is like this like all dominating power and all these different fields and all these other countries are just getting in line to follow it and I think that's really interesting to see that in this field in particular that's maybe not the truth and I was also wondering I know it's you know only a, a few weeks into the Biden administration but what changes or what approaches are we seeing from this new administration and his cabinet thus far towards China in particular?
2: I liked the way um, the now Deputy Secretary Kathleen Hicks, Dr. Kathleen Hicks, kind of framed it. And I think this is going to be the lens in which the US sees this relationship is China is, and she said this is the pacing threat of the US. And so in my mind, that's also different than kind of a challenging threat, like it's not immediately a threat. It's something that we're going to need to be watching. It's something that we're going to have to see, okay, so they are modernizing. They are modernizing in all of these different ways. They are modernizing across the nuclear triad. They are qualitatively, quantitatively moving forward with different programs in their nuclear arsenal. What kind of changes may we see with that? Is that going to change their posture of no first use as they get early warning systems? Is that going to change? And so I think that this mindset of a pacing adversary is helpful because it's not saying they're a direct threat, they're not a direct challenge, but it's something that we're gonna be needing to kind of follow and pace with and kind of see where are they going, what are they doing. And I, I agree with that mentality. And I think that the Biden administration will continue similar policies of trying to be tough while on the same time trying to incite engagement and encourage engagement.
0: Well, thank you, Rose, so much for coming to speak with us tonight about China, Chinese nuclear programs. Your expertise is very valued here and we support all of the work you do and can't wait to see where your career takes you. But thank you for imparting some knowledge upon us and our listeners tonight.
2: Well, thank you for having me on the show. Thank you so much, Rose, for joining us. Yeah,
0: Thank you. Alright, thank you so much to Rose for an amazing discussion on the Chinese nuclear program. We are now going to turn to our non-pro shout out for the week, which is Masako Toki. Masako is the Senior Education Project Manager and Research Associate for the Nonproliferation Education Program at the James Martin Center for Nonproliferation Studies in Monterey, California. Several of her responsibilities include managing the Critical Issues Forum, which is an education program for high school students, both in the United States and Russia. She is also a member of the Japan Association of Disarmament Studies and the US Japan Leadership Program. The reason that we wanted to highlight Masako today is because she has been one of our biggest supporters since we began the podcast. She is incredibly encouraging, extremely knowledgeable and honestly, one of the best friends of the Big Nuke Energy Show. So I'm gonna turn it over to my co-hosts. Are there any other things you guys would like to say about the wonderful Masako?
1: Yeah, just echoing what you said, Sam, literally from day one, like before we even recorded or did anything, Masako was just so incredibly supportive of us. And I think she's listened to all of our episodes and always comments on it and lets us know that she's listening and, and thinks it's a good thing. And so we're just so, so grateful have had someone like her fiercely advocating for us and, and supporting us the whole way through. And she's, she's come up with some really good ideas. And also the work she's doing apart from the podcast is just so important and critical, truly to to educating the next generation of people focused on these issues like us, and also a lot of high schoolers, as you know, Ariel once was.
3: Yeah, I met Masako when I was in high school, and she's been a role model, a friend since then. And I don't think I've met anyone else as supportive and as nice as she is. I remember when we were all interns, I dropped an oven tray on my toe. I got a wicked toe contusion and Osaka picked me up from the urgent care and was just lovely in every single way. And she's always done such great work, but she's also an amazing person. So big shout out to her. Yeah, at the end of our internship
1: experience, I had like a very unfortunate death in my family and Masako was just so, so supportive of me and so kind and helped me figure everything out and it was just so, so kind and was really there for me during a very challenging time and she's, she's there for the good moments, she's there for the really hard moments too.
0: All of this to say, if you do not know who Masako is, please go check her out on Twitter, Please go find her, the friend her, once COVID is over. She is an amazing human being and an incredible support for the show. So big B&E shout out to Masako Toki. Thank you so much. And with that, we can go ahead and move into Toes in the Heavy Water. Ariel, what you got for us this week?
3: Yes, I wanted to have kind of a short discussion on what the role of morals should be in software development, but also tech in general. And usually this is a Trump Twitter section, but you know, Trump's been banned from Twitter. And so I think that was a rare instance of tech CEOs finally deciding that there was a line. And I guess, Trump crossed that line and in, uh, inciting the riot at the Capitol building. And so he was banned from Twitter, but it, it begs larger questions. And also with Parler, for example, which was a messaging app. It was basically where white supremacists and people who had planned the riots at the Capitol were communicating. And that was quickly taken down after all of Trump's followers flocked to them. But something that I think is especially interesting that I've been thinking about a lot is, you know, in order to have a website that's touting like racist, homophobic, et cetera, narratives, and also to host apps like Parlor, where they don't, they are almost marketing themselves off of not having morals and letting anything go. Amazon Web Services is behind a lot of it because you honestly, you cannot have a successful website or app if you don't have kind of like the database and the server set up in the back end. And doing that on your own is really hard and expensive. So in order to have like a significant amount of traffic on your website, you basically need to use Amazon web services or something similar. And so the question is, should Amazon web services, who are hosting a lot of these sites, should they be more specific about how they do that because you don't have that kind of support. It's very easy to shut down a site. All you have to do is get like a thousand people to go on it at the same time and it crashes. So just some interesting things to think about.
1: That's really interesting, Ariel. And I did not know that about developing websites and apps like that. And obviously I read a lot and heard a lot about suspending Trump from Twitter and suspending other leaders and all the debate about that, but I didn't, I was not familiar with what you said about actually developing those platforms. And that's a really interesting and good point. And I think, like you said, it's, it's kind of this interesting nexus of, you know, our constitutionally protected right, but also the ability of a private corporation to make decisions for itself, how it sees fit. So yeah, I don't know, hard things to think about for the future.
0: I think you guys both bring up some excellent points, especially Ariel, what you were saying about the backend developers, especially if let's say that you are working on coding a website for Amazon and you're not certain what exactly that code is going to be used for. You just know that you're trying to make the most efficient and speedy and useful website that you possibly can. I feel like it's very difficult for people in those situations to actually know what their code is being used for. I'm not absolving them of all blame because that's not always the case. And going off of what you said, Grace, as well about, you know, we've had this debate for a while about having free speech in the United States and having, you know, what's the line between free speech and like a hate crime. And I think that if Amazon hypothetically is behind a lot of these platforms, Amazon is a private company with a code of conduct. And if Amazon is not going to follow that code of conduct or have a code of conduct that is inherently racist, homophobic, anti-Semitic, whatever the deal may be. I think that's when it's up to us as consumers of that media to do something about it and pressure them to actually abide by rules or put regulations in place to ensure that people don't go around inciting rebellions on our nation's capital. That's a
1: really good point, Sam. And I think, like you said, it's it's so important to think about the role of consumers and and you know what people can do if we're not consuming a product or we're not consuming the language from someone. You're not banning that person's speech. You're not banning their access to the internet in some forms, but you're saying, I'm not going to patronize this company that's supporting it. I am not going to, to patronize this organization that's allowing them to proliferate this speech. And I think that that's where we kind of get at, you know, the way to deal with these things, like you said, that are, are hugely problematic, but aren't infringing on anyone's free speech, because you can just choose not to financially support certain organizations or certain platforms. And then, you know, everyone is, is able to, to express their views, but you don't have to consume it.
3: Yeah, it's just really interesting to think about where the responsibility lies, because if Amazon's just hosting the website. And so it's like storing the data and handling, you know, users accessing the server and such. They, you know, they're not the ones coding the websites or, you know, writing racist, sexist, homophobic, anti-Semitic things. I don't, I was just, when I was thinking about this question of what role should morals be, I was like, how can you monitor every single website that's out there? Like, how do we prevent this kind of language from being out there so much. And my thought was, okay, Amazon Web Services is hosting a ton of, like, they host most of the websites on the internet. And so we were going to choose one place to be like, okay, is there some way we can regulate this or monitor this? That would be one place to start. And it's, I think it's a place that we don't often think about. I think that's also a really
1: good point, Ariel. And I think it also kind of begs the question of like, who can actually monitor that. Because I know that with a lot of social media platforms, for instance, they have people whose entire job is to go through the platform habitually and flag things and remove things that are obviously inappropriate content. So not you know, any gray area things, but obviously like really, really violent or horrific content that's been posted. And I also know that most of those people, most of those positions have incredibly high turnover rates because people can't look at that kind of content and information all day every day for a very long amount of time because who could? And so I think it, it kind of gets at that issue of like, how do, we, how do we actually address this? Is there a software we can develop some kind of like AI system or do we need to have real people going through and flagging things and pulling things and, and, and having them remove things? And then how, how do we get those people into those roles because they have such high turnover? Sam, do you wanna give us an Iran update?
0: Yes, I would love to. All right, so here is what is going on in Iran. A recent New York Times article says that Iranian leaders are now rethinking their vow to never seek a nuclear weapon. So this might sound kind of crazy. You're like, oh, Iran's been developing nuclear technology. There is a rumor that the Supreme Leader issued a religious decree that Iran would never seek nuclear weapons. Recently, however... There has been a divergence in the discourse from Iranian leaders saying that they are thinking about changing their position if the U.S. does not lift its maximum pressure economic sanctions. So I think this rhetoric is very strong. I think that Iran is engaging in this discourse because there is a new U.S. presidential administration that potentially wants to make a deal, get an early foreign policy victory for their administration by either renegotiating the JCPOA or negotiating a new Iranian nuclear deal. For those of you that don't know, the JCPOA is the original Iranian nuclear deal signed back in 2015 that limited Iranian nuclear capabilities in exchange for a withdrawal of international sanctions. And then in May of 2018, President Trump withdrew the US from that and reinstated sanctions. So that's the background. That's what the Biden administration is having to deal with. And the New York Times article also mentioned that Israeli intelligence says that Iran is only two years away from obtaining a nuclear weapon. They have nuclear capabilities, but they don't have the expertise to craft it into a weapon is what this article was saying. I do think we need to be careful of the fact that it is Israeli intelligence that is saying that and they are notoriously skeptical of Iran. Those two are historic rivals. But I also think that there can be some truth found in the sense that Iran has been enriching its uranium past the JCPOA limits. It has much larger stockpile of enriched uranium as IAEA inspectors have confirmed. So all this to say... Expect something soon from the Biden administration, especially since Iran is going to have a presidential election this year. I do believe that these two nations are hurtling towards some sort of agreement. So that is an Iran update for the moment. Thanks for for tuning in. (laughs) Thanks for that update, Sam. And that was super helpful to
1: give a a broad overview, especially as you say, we enter this new administration. And I think it goes to show... How, you know, we, we knew it would be this way, but that kind of lasting damage of the Trump administration's decision to withdraw from the JCPOA and to show a country like Iran or other countries that, you know, the deal that you sign or the agreement that you make is only as good as as long as that president who made that deal is in office. And so, you know, even if there is motivation to go forward with the JCPOA, which I don't think there clearly is from the Biden administration based on everything that has been said publicly by Biden and his team. I think you would see a lot of reticence in Iran just because, you know, it could be it could be gone in four years. But who knows? So that was a a scary but very helpful update.
0: Sounds good. Grace, do you want to give us an update on what's going on in North Korea and Russia?
1: Yeah, sure. So North Korea, there was a, a defection today to South Korea over the demilitarized zone which is a very heavily armed region between the two countries the south has not revealed a lot of information on the defection but most people who do defect to south korea from north korea don't go through this zone just because it's so so heavily armed and would be at incredible risk of of being killed probably so more to come on that but i really wanted to flag an article written recently by a former guest of the podcast megan dubois called Nighttime in Pyongyang, Aesthetics and Deterrence under Kim Jong-un, which was published recently in The Diplomat. It's available online. So I highly recommend going to check it out, which I think does a really, really interesting job of providing an overview of the aesthetics of North Korea's nuclear deterrence and how it chooses to present itself to the world. And so I think it's just a really, really interesting take on North Korea that I think we just haven't seen a lot. So highly recommend that you check that out. And then for Russia, the very exciting news is that New START was extended between the U.S. and Russia, so I can finally get off my, my high horse on that. Yeah, so we have a five-year extension between the U.S. and Russia, which was the full amount of time it could be extended for. I think there's a lot of questions that remain on how the U.S. and Russia can move forward beyond New START in their relationship, especially their arms control relationship, a lot of very broad differences remain between the two countries and their views on a whole host of things that I think will be hard to negotiate going forward. But I think, you know, it's still exciting to be able to celebrate this positive treaty progress for the next five years. And we, we need to start now, though, of course, thinking, thinking about the future.
0: That's awesome. It's great to hear some victories sometimes yes, instead victory. of just JCPOA is collapsing. What do we do?
3: <laughs> yeah, I feel like I feel like I won the job. But yeah, Yeah, and it's almost like bad news seems like slightly less bad because I'm like, oh, there's a logical person in the White House and things might be bad, but I can trust that he will listen to facts and talk to experts and get multiple opinions and, you know, won't get all of his news from Twitter. And that's, you know, I'm grateful for that.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. So before we dive into the remainder of our podcast, we have an important announcement We will be posting this on our social media platform, so you will be able to see it in written form. But as of right now, I will read our open letter. So to our beloved listeners, followers, and supporters, we, Grace, Ariel, and Sam, are sad to announce that we will be scaling back our efforts with the Big Nuke Energy podcast Unfortunately, due to increasing outside commitments, we do not have as much time to give to BE as we feel is necessary for a successful and empowering podcast. We are extremely grateful for all of the encouragement and insistence that you have provided us in the past year and a half. We are particularly grateful for the community of young women and gender aware individuals working in non-proliferation and national security that have lifted up our voices. In the future, we will be releasing episodes at non-specified intervals. We will continue to conduct research and promote minority voices in non-proliferation and national security and promise to maintain our Twitter presence. We thank you again for your support and look forward to continually uplifting our network at a pace more sustainable to the hosts' work and school commitments. Thank you. So with that, we would like to just turn to a little fun section at the end where we talk about what has been our favorite moments with the podcast thus far. And with that, I'll go ahead and let Ariel answer first. We can just see what happens because I'm so curious to know what you guys have most enjoyed about making this podcast.
3: Yeah, so my favorite BNE moment was when we were in Monterey and we were recording in like the closet. It was, they're basically closets at the Media Center at the uh, Middlebury Institute of International Studies. I don't know how we all fit in there. It was basically the size of a closet. But there's exactly. one time we were recording and we kept seeing all these little seagulls, <laughs> seagull babies in the alley. And I, I was on like, I was very into birding then I'm still very into birding but I was like I got some things to tell you about the birds and we just talked about the seagulls on the ground hopping around And it was very interesting <laughs> so <good>. to me <laughs> and it was also
1: always like 300 degrees in the closet oh and there goodness. were like four of us it would be us with our guest and it was just like you were sweating and trying to talk about nuclear issues it was an experience
0: an experience for sure. And we had like one computer that we all were looking at. yeah. And so you just kind of had to either know your stuff or hope the font was big enough that you could read your notes and <laughs> go from there. Yeah. That recording booth was something else. <laughs> mm-hmm. Dang. Grace, what about you? Yeah. I
1: think I, I like have so many things I can't narrow them down. So I'll just, I'll hit on a couple. I liked um, one time, Ariel, when you weren't here, when you were abroad doing your amazing work, Sam and I recorded, I think, during like a little <laughs> hurricane.
3: <laughs> oh my <laughs> God. <laughs> and, and it
1: kept cutting in and out. And I felt so bad for our guest, who was so gracious, but <laughs> it was like pouring. And, and I think say it was in Georgia and it was really bad in Virginia, but in Georgia, it was like actually ashley- It was
0: tornadoing. It was, I was and, in the bathroom. <laughs>
1: I was like, you don't have to do this, um, but we had planned it. And it was, it was, you know, the things we do. And then I, I just had so many other like fabulous memories. I, I loved our intern reunion episode. I thought it was so fun to see mm-hmm. where all of our intern friends have mm-hmm. gone. I love learning about cricket from Anu. I love getting yes. to read interesting books from Dr. Pack and Dr. Zaretsky and Dr. Bajama and just getting to hear all about, and so many other, so many interesting things. And just so many fun things to get to discuss with people. And I think what has been most meaningful for me, though, has been hearing from people that they really do feel empowered by our podcast, our guests and listeners alike, that they feel like they're learning a lot and that it can take these things that are really hard to discuss and make them more accessible. And I think what's been just so meaningful is when we have a guest who says, like, you know, why did you ask me? And we say, because we care about what you think about. And we genuinely do. Like, we really want to hear what you have to share. And they... Kind of sometimes are surprised by that, and we're like, no, like, you are the person we want to hear from. And I think. That something that's been awesome has been, you know, being able to interact with people at all stages of their career, you know, from interns up to people who are now deputy assistant secretaries of state. And that's something that's been really special. And then I think, oh, sorry, this is a long, long list of memories. But I think for me, it's really just been getting to, to do this with you guys because we were friends in Monterey, but then we became much closer, I think. And it was, it's just been really special and we'll always have this. And I'm really, really sad to to be Saying goodbye to BNE, but I think it's the right time. And like Sam said, it's, you know, not goodbye forever, but I I think it's the right time. But I just love getting to to work on this project with you guys. Sam, what about you? What's your your favorite memory, your
0: memories? Honestly, you guys have said some of them. I was gonna okay, say the said, seagull. Like, everything we've
3: ever said.
0: The seagulls, <laughs> the seagulls like
3: an iconic
0: episode. moment. The seagulls just aerial. I just remember you were just like so distracted. It was so hard not to. They were squawking right out the right next to us in the window and oh my gosh and yes publicly grace thank you for carrying on the episode when I was like in my bathroom when it was tornadoing and I felt so bad and I was like I think I had to like disconnect and reconnect and like miss 10 minutes of it so thank you it wasn't you
1: for your <laughs> fault at all and I think I had the same issue I was in like a basement of a library with no connection it was it was a mess we yeah. got through
0: it. that's what matters I think another one of my favorite moments was just, I remember us sitting around the night we decided to make the podcast because we were at a party and you know how people were just like, let's make a podcast, like, ha, ha, ha. Like we yeah. were joking. We had been joking for like a couple of weeks that all millennials say, oh, we should make a podcast. But like, I remember looking you guys in the eyes and being like, no, like we should actually make a podcast. And nothing will compare to that lovely thrill of of starting everything up. Several other highlights though. I remember talking to Grace Liu when we spoke with her and she revealed some of the really, really awesome open source analysis she was doing. It blew my mind because at that point I knew who Jeffrey Lewis was. I still think he's absolutely incredible and very talented analyst, but it was really inspiring to see Grace doing almost the exact same work as him, working with him. Seeing her as a young woman in such a position was so empowering, and that was one of our first couple episodes, and I really enjoyed that. Also, one that the listeners might not know about is when we when we recorded with Anu, we actually, she and I actually had a little duet. It was
1: incredible, I just got to say. <laughs> amazing.
0: It was basically that I saw on her Twitter that she was into music or something, and I've been in choir basically my whole life. And so we sang a little bit of Frozen together. We sang a duet and honestly, it was so beautiful. I have no other words for it except for, <laughs> it was amazing.
1: It was so good. Just, just wanted to, yeah, it was, it was amazing. <laughs> I was I was taken aback. I was like, wow, you guys, you know, nuclear things, but also you can both really sing.
0: <laughs> Plot twist, we were just trying to serenade you, Grace. <laughs>
1: I appreciated it. And I'm the only one who ever got to hear
0: yeah, I, I still have it saved. So maybe if people convince convince us, um, I I still believe I have the sequel incident recorded as well. So all of these outtakes can be published if we are convinced properly. Any
3: <laughs> yeah, bloopers?
0: Exactly, exactly. But yeah, I mean, there's just no words to describe how incredible this experience has been, and. I'm forever grateful that we all ended up in Monterey, even if that summer was interesting and slightly challenging for all of us for varying different personal reasons. I am really grateful that I got to know you guys through that. And now we can be friends for the rest of our lives. So, I mean, that's pretty great. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think that's something that's just like so amazing about our podcast is I feel like it really like kind of like encapsulated like our friendship like in the moment. Like we were friends when we started it, but I think it's really just like shown how it's grown because we, you know, we got we got better at doing it together. We went from the 300 degree room to using Zencaster to using Zoom. And like we've done it through a pandemic. We've done it through different schools. We've done it through Ariel being abroad. And I think it just shows like how our friendship's grown and we'll always like be able to go back and like remember when we were in Monterey, we didn't really know each other, but we had this idea. So
0: Yeah. Remember when Ariel and I annoyed all the other interns by watching the Shia LaBeouf video every morning. Oh my gosh, I still think (laughs)
3: about that all the time.
0: (laughs) As you should.
1: (laughs) And me just getting like very competitive at trivia, which nothing's changed. So the more things change, the more they say the same.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you all again for your support of this podcast. Like I said, we'll be releasing our, our farewell letter on our social media as well. But just in case you you don't follow us, we will still be active on Twitter. Feel free to message us. Feel free to send something to our email. We are still around, just not as frequently. So yeah,
1: we have more memes where that came from. So <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> well, thank you all so much for listening. It's been yeah. a wild but awesome ride. Mm-hmm.